You don't have to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots here and see where this is going. They are going to intrude in families. It's going to get much worse. It has already started. Unless and until people put their foot down, it's going to get really, really ugly. When you first research this issue, the only things that come up are affirm your child. This is a really significant issue that your child has now fallen into. This is evil. This is absolute evil that is coming at our kids. And if our faith community is not going to stand between that evil and our children, I don't know what hope we have. There's absolutely no way that we could have gotten from 2015 to 2018 where we had transgender everywhere, okay? It took them almost 15 years to get gay marriage. Well, it took them three to five years to get this transgender stuff. When you stand by and do nothing, then you are essentially saying, I'm okay with the human carnage and the human suffering that is coming from this transgender, gender ideological agenda. This is something that is affecting families in possibly every congregation in America. The way that the devil and his forces lose this is by speaking truth. God will not hold us guiltless for our cowardice, and that's what it is. It's cowardice in the pulpit. It's cowardice in our churches. It's cowardice from Christians in government. Do what you're doing for the generations to come. Do your job. Get your tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, a behind the scenes of our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features, where we are creating documentary films about the issues impacting our culture and society from a biblical perspective and pursuing truth above all else. I'm Amber Archer, and joining me is my husband, author, director, speaker, Mark Archer. Laugh it up, fuzzball. (laughs) If you find this podcast helpful, be sure to subscribe and share this show to help us reach more people. You can learn more about us and the movies we're making by visiting fearlessfeatures.org. Yay! Back again for another exciting adventure. (laughs) Can you name the movie? Can you name the movie? Let me play it again. Laugh it up, fuzzball. <laughs> I have no idea. I don't know. I'm not even going to guess. I, wait, wait, wait. Wait, play it again one more time. Laugh it up, fuzzball. Um, <laughs> There's people in their cars going, oh, come on. <laughs> nope. Don't know. Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Babe, you know I fall asleep. It's Han Solo. No, th- no. See, you lost me. Th- 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 those are nap time movies for me. <laughs> <sighs> okay, fine. I liked Rogue One. Let me just say, malfunction. Need input. Rogue One was pretty good. <laughs> I, I, I would, I would, yeah, I would say Rogue One is up there as one of the best Star Wars movies. Yeah, with Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. Return of the Jedi. And Rogue One, definitely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everything else. Solo, one of the worst. I don't even remember that. I, I must have fallen asleep. It's I don't, so bad. I don't remember It's so bad. <laughs> anyway. And anything with Hayden Christensen in it. Anyway, I digress. Anyway. <laughs> so we have fun. Before we get to like real news, mm-hmm. I just, speaking of kind of laughing about things. Oh, we get to laugh at people? Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I don't know how many people are familiar with the Burning Man. That happens. We've talked about this before on the show. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which episode it was now, but um, so 
it kind of it's let me let me just find so burning man for people who don't know is this big annual festival out in the desert of it's in black rock nevada nevada okay i was gonna say new mexico no and they go out and they burn well it started off as just burning this giant wooden man right this effigy of a man and it has turned into a hedonistic yeah uh I don't know, an orgy. I mean, it's just absolutely disgusting. Mm-hmm. The, what is like a week long usually? Nah, I don't know. So let me, I'll read a little bit here. Um, so this is off of Fox News, I believe. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Burning Man traffic jams tops seven hours as Nevada festivals roads reopen following torrential rains. <laughs> and as soon as I saw it, and I thought, the, wait, Lord, wait, wait, the wait, Lord really wait. has a sense of humor. <laughs> I thought we were in the era of global boiling. <laughs> as the last I heard that it was time to uh, panic. Right. So Fox Weather's Max Gordon provides details on Burning Man attendees, hours lo- their hours-long effort to depart the festival after heavy rain prompted a driving ban over the weekend. <laughs> Attendees trying to leave the muddy Burning Man Festival are now having to deal with a lengthy traffic jam Tuesday morning. A message posted on the X account, Burning Man, less than 24 hours after the Nevada Festival's organizers lifted a driving ban following heavy rainfall, had said, quote, Exodus wait times are approximately seven and a half hours. (laughs) Can you imagine going to a festival? They actually said Exodus wait times? Yeah, Exodus. Exodus wait times are approximately... How interesting. 7.5 hours. The account later said the backup was about three hours. On Monday, Burning the Burning Man website said Exodus operations have officially begun in Black Rock City. Also noting that in previous years, Exodus wait times peaked to six to nine hours. (laughs) (laughs) Please know that while conditions are improving, the roads are drying. The playa is still muddy and may be difficult to navigate in some neighborhoods and down certain streets. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, going on and on. Okay. So the annual gathering, which launched on a San Francisco beach in 1986, now attracts nearly 80,000 artists, musicians, and activists to northern Nevada for a mix of wilderness camping and avant-garde performances. Mm-hmm. And don't forget the orgy tent. Uh-huh. Disruptions are part of the event's recent history. Dust storms forced organizers to temporarily close entrances to the festival in 2018, and the event was twice canceled altogether during the pandemic. On Saturday, organizers of the Countercultural Festival told attendees to shelter in a warm, safe place and conserve food, water, and fuel amid rainstorms. Both the airport and entrance of Black Rock City, Nevada, where the event is held, were closed because of the conditions. My home. Slimy. My home, this is. <laughs> <laughs> the measures came after more than one half inch of rain was believed to have drenched the festival site on Friday, the National Weather Service said in Reno. <laughs> Oh, mm-hmm. the annual event is known for the burning of a large wooden effigy, which is supposed to take place Saturday night. Organi- organizers posted on the event website the burning would take place on Monday night. And mm-hmm. I think I think if I read in another article, they actually pushed that back to Tuesday night because it was still a mess. So so much for Burning Man. Yeah. <laughs> there's your there's your idol going down in flames. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad for you. Uh huh. Because uh, 
Yeah, going out in the desert and lighting things on fire. That's normal. So what else you got? So also what's happening, speaking of burning things down, goodness, California is just on a roll to destroy the family. Mm-hmm. So we've been, obviously, because we've been um, tracking the transgender ideology around the nation and seeing what's happening. And Washington state has already passed laws for state sanctioned kidnapping. Basically. Yeah. And if you don't affirm your child's transgender identity, then the state can come in and remove your child. Yeah. So California is now doing the same thing. California passes a controversial law requiring parents to affirm child's gender identity or face punishment. California's controversial AB 957, which basically mandates that parents affirm their child's gender identity or be punished, passed the state Senate on Tuesday. The bill titled Family Law Gender Identity passed California State's Assembly on May 3rd, but radical state Senator Scott Weiner added an amendment on June 6th that would char- that would change the state's standard of the well-being of a minor to, quote, Include a parent's affirmation of the child's gender identity as part of the health, safety, and welfare of the child. Mm. Now that it's passed the Senate, the Assembly will need to agree to its amendments, the Senate attached, which the heavily Democratic legislative body assuredly will. Then it heads to uh, Governor Governor Gavin Newsom's desk, where he will almost certainly sign it, hence... Gruesome Newsom. Gruesome Newsom. Uh, the bill could potentially make you guilty of child abuse if you refuse to call your son Jane and buy him dresses. Authorities could take your kid away if you don't bend the knee. California courts would be given complete authority under Section 3011 of California's Family Code to remove a child from his or her parents' home if parents disapprove of LGBTQ plus ideology. By changing the definition of what constitutes as, quote, health, safety and welfare of a child, schools, churches, hospitals and other organizations interacting with children would be required to affirm gender transitions in minors by default or risk charges of child abuse. Yeah, I I I mean, and it and it goes on. I saw in here, I think it was like age 12. Let me uh, let me find that. I, yeah, I think the question that we have to really answer honestly is, do we still live in a democratic republic? I think you can reasonably, very reasonably make the argument, even though you may not see it everywhere, but you certainly are starting to see it an awful lot, the police state. I mean, we are, we are indicting people for free speech now Mm -hmm. and now we are the 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 governments are you know state government is giving itself authority to take your children away Mm -hmm. and and mutilate them and place them in uh, someone else's home. Yeah. You'll never see them again. Right. Well, one of, one of the, if if you're interested in following along with these, I, I highly recommend following Real Impact. And it was founded through um, Chino Hills mm-hmm. Church. 
uh, Calvary Church. I think they Cal- are. Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. I, I, I think that's what it is. Jack Hibbs Church. Yeah, Jack Hibbs Church. And so AB665 and AB957 have passed the, the California Senate and California Assembly and have now been sent to um, California Governor Gavin Newsom's desk to sign or veto by October 14th. If he refrains from taking either action before the deadline, the bills would automatically become law. AB665, which is the one we were just talking about, will allow state-sanctioned kidnapping. This dangerous bill will change current law by allowing a, quote, professional person to place a child 12 years and older in a residential shelter without parental consent or knowledge. AB 957 will require California courts in a custody dispute to consider if the parent affirms the child's new gender identity. These bills will make parental rights unrecognizable in the state of California, putting countless children and families in danger. <sighs> well, when so, we talk, you know, and it, this is why we've been banging the drum so loudly for years now. And, and we're not certainly not the first. No, we're just joining in because many people have been doing this for decades hey one body many parts everybody brings something to the table yeah everybody everybody had you you have to do your part and with this it's it seems so overwhelming because you look at it just as a parent and say well what can i possibly do especially if you don't even live in california hey well that's a great segue are you were you done with that almost Almost, go ahead i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) Now I forgot what I was going to say. Go ahead. (laughs) No, I I remember. So it was that, um, that you have to, what can you do as a parent? Well, educate yourself, Mm -hmm. educate others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, being aware as GI Joe says, knowing is half the battle. (laughs) Right. And you know, I know GI Joe. I know, you know, GI Joe, but I have a real American hero. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, Kristen. Keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. <laughs> so I, I have another article here that I'll leave. Uh, okay. Th- this comes from Texas Scorecard. And Erin Anderson, who is a phenomenal journalist there in Texas, she, we've had her on the show before. But she is um, talking about what has happened in Texas through this last legislative session. And we, when you're talking about, you know, it, we kind of it seems hopeless mm-hmm. and we think, what can we do? Well, let me tell you. Okay. Uh, Kristen Bentley, who... She was great at organizing screening events for the mine polluters, getting Mm -hmm. it at the state capitol, at the GOP state convention there in Texas. Um, So now she is, the the headline reads, Texas mom teaches how to audit school libraries for explicit books. Awesome. School officials already have the legal authority to remove explicit materials from student libraries. A Texas mom is teaching parents how to identify sexually explicit books that need to be removed from their children's school as a new law to prohibit smut in students' libraries and classroom is pending in court. Kristen Bentley is presenting is presenting workshops across the state explaining how to audit school libraries for sexually explicit, pervasively vulgar, and educationally unsuitable materials. Bentley is a parent and pro-family education advocate who serves on the Texas GOP State Republican Executive Committee. (laughs) Man, that was a mouthful. (laughs) Exactly. Um, As chair of the SREC's Stop Sexualizing Texas Kids Legislative Committee, Bentley led a successful grassroots effort supporting House Bill 900, which 
which prohibits sexually explicit materials in Texas schools. Bentley's filthy book campaign opened the eyes of lawmakers in both parties to the need to clean up kids' school libraries. Bentley now holds in-person and online workshops statewide, teaching parents and community members how to identify unsuitable books in their local schools. In addition to training, Bentley prepared a toolkit and a list of about 400 titles that are likely to require removal under HB 900. And so I'm going to leave a link to this so Mm -hmm. that people can go and see um, just exactly learn more about what HB 900 is, because it's also known as the Reader Act. We've talked about it before on this show. Yep, We had her on. Yep. Um, So it directs the Texas State Library and Archives Commission to adopt state standards for keeping explicit content out of school and libraries and classrooms by January 1, 2024. It also requires vendors to rate and label books based on sexual content by April 1st, 2024. Vendors that fail to comply cannot sell books to Texas schools. And we applaud their efforts, everything that they've been doing, because I can tell you. I am really interested to see how that one bill in Texas will actually have an effect across the nation. Yeah. Because those publishers, they can't um, they can't chance getting these books in any of these Texas schools. Mm-hmm. Although they they will lose they'll lose the contract. The contract. Right. You gotta hit them where it hurts. That's <laughs> so, the only thing they care about. Are there ideologues making these decisions? Yeah. And they're making these decisions because they're allowed to stay employed as soon as they start. Look at what happened to Anheuser-Busch. Mm-hmm. As soon as it costs them a billion dollars and, and you know, two places in their market share, that, the, that ideologue who made that bonehead decision mm-hmm. disappeared. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They won't do that again. Well, they might. Bill Gates just bought up all the stock. I so. saw that. <laughs> that's that's for another another topic right, for another story. Right. So for that, Kristen, you earn well you earn a special sounder. Ready? Yeah. You're everyone's problem. <laughs> <laughs> well done. <laughs> but in our book, you're a hero. Real I don't American like you heroes. because you're dangerous. Exactly. Okay. What else we got today? So we're introducing another cast member. Yes. So we're gonna go to break. Um and come back and we're going to introduce another Dysphoria cast member. Did you know that there's a premiere coming up? <gasps> I'm excited and I did get a, a sparkly dress. She did get a sparkly dress. I did. And she made me an appointment at the tuck shop. Well, that would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Just happy to have something that fits me. There Just you go. Saying. So, yes, we're going to meet uh, Monique Leaklein. Mm-hmm. Monica she was part of the Mind Polluters. A big large part, part of the Mind yeah. Polluters. And she has a role to play in Dysphoria as well. So we'll be our It's very powerful. Very powerful. And, and it's well done. It uh, covers a broad range of problems that we have today in the world. I think that it's something that everybody needs to see. I was shocked by CPS being involved. And I was shocked by the secrecy, uh, uh, you know, keeping the secrets from the parents of what the, the children are being told and what they're being taught and not being made aware of it and secretly indoctrinating these kids uh, is absolutely shocking. It's absolutely horrible and it needs to stop. I was shocked. A lot of different things are pulling together. I don't think the the expanse of how bad it is, people don't know about. All of the different elements of what's happening in the world today, somehow you pulled it 
to within two hours and 15 minutes. What stood out against uh, to me is um, I've, I've been watching uh, Klaus, the World uh, Economic Forum, uh, the Great Reset. I see that thing coming like crazy, but I didn't realize the association with dysphoria. And it's important to see that this thing has been in, inculcated into the school system and that it is now in place. It's not coming, it's in place. You think, oh, that can't be going on. And, and the more I watched it, I thought, this is exactly what's going on. Get your tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Okay, so, sorry to interrupt your flow. I know, exactly. <clears throat> okay, so... You got a in an intro for Monica. Yeah, Monica. We love Monica and uh, talk to her often. And I'm so glad to call her friend. And but, our girls call her Aunt Monica. Yes, and our girls do call her Aunt Monica. Monica Klein worked 10 years for Planned Parenthood as a comprehensive sex educator, where she first began regular interactions with the transsexual community. As a Title X training manager and volunteer educator for Planned Parenthood, Monica has seen firsthand the harm caused by comprehensive sex education. Now, Monica is a fearless advocate for family values and children's well-being. Today, through her organization, It Takes a Family, she courageously exposes the truth behind comprehensive sex education, empowering families to protect their children and communities from this increasingly pervasive influence. So, and I should note, everybody else calls her Monica. Yeah. But we call her Monica because she introduces herself as Monica. Yes. And she said that's what her mother calls her. Yes. And, and so, so we say, out of respect for mom, we right. call her Monica. So, Okay, here's uh, Monica. I'm Monica Leal Klein, and I'm the founder of It Takes a Family. And I, um, I established that organization around 2018, 19, because of something that Planned Parenthood taught me, which is that parents are a barrier to service. And when they started to tell me more about how they were trying to keep parents away from their children uh, and the ways that they did that, uh, and especially in society today, we can hear people talking about how parents are uneducated, ill-equipped. They'll never talk to their children about important topics like sex and abortion and being pro-life or any of those things. Um, and so Planned Parenthood just really wanted to keep parents out of the picture. And, uh, and they really felt that they needed to be out of the picture. And so I decided to start It Takes a Family because it's, it's almost like a campaign. Like I just want parents to reclaim parenthood again, to understand that you are equipped, that God has equipped you with everything that you need to care for your children, to educate your children, to comfort them, uh, to ask them questions, to have fun with them, everything. God has equipped moms and dads for that specific role. And they are the primary educators. God calls us to be the primary educators of our teacher, he of our children. He teaches us to do that in Deuteronomy. I mean, just read Genesis and in the beginning, the first few books of the Bible, and you see that he's really calling on parents to teach their children as they wake up, as they lay down, as they walk by the way, and as they sit down, which really is just a command that we are to be there for our children and to teach them on a daily basis. And it doesn't mean that we're giving them lessons all day long. It just means that we're doing life with them and that it's, it's not just about entertaining our kids, but really educating our children, giving them wisdom, helping them to understand the role of family and our role in our society. So when Planned Parenthood said, hey, we want to get parents out of the picture, I knew that meant that family was important, that that was the number one thing that they considered as their barrier to be able to continue their services with children. 
And so I committed myself to educating parents, making sure that they are educated, that they are equipped, and that they are speaking into their children's lives. So tell me about your time with Planned Parenthood. What was your role? What were you doing? So my time with Planned Parenthood was really as a collaborator. Um, so I was actually working for a gay organization uh, in HIV prevention, and I was sent over to Planned Parenthood uh, to have them teach me how to teach children about sex education. And, uh, and so several organizations along with Planned Parenthood, we all collaborated in the community. So I was in HIV prevention, the STD clinic was another organization that had run by the city that had outreach workers. Planned Parenthood had their own outreach workers and there were several other HIV organizations in the community as well. And so we would all collaborate and split the community, let's say. So if I was gonna be in this zip code, then the other organizations would be in another zip code on the same day. So we would just share the territory. Um, and so I collaborated with Planned Parenthood for many years. And as I continued to rise up the ladder uh, towards the end of my career, I was a Title X training manager and Planned Parenthood receives Title X money. That's family planning money. And so my job was to train Title X clinics, which included Planned Parenthood, about the key concepts of Title X for family planning clinics and, uh, and to teach them counseling skills and uh, to work with the, the women that were coming into their clinics, including minor girls, because Title X will provide these services to girls of childbearing age. So if a nine-year-old girl is menstruating, and decides to go to a Planned Parenthood for birth control and pap smears and STD testing, she can do that without her parents ever knowing about it and the state will pay for it. So this is why comprehensive sex education is also targeting very young children. Um, and so my role at Planned Parenthood was not only did they mentor me at the beginning of my career, but by the end of my career, I was training them on counseling skills in the clinic setting. And in those workshops, they would disclose a lot of the things that were happening within the clinics, whether it was case studies, um, but also how they felt about family. And many of them, not many, but pretty much every Planned Parenthood would always let me know that parents were a barrier to service. So they always said that as soon as parents are involved, as soon as a parent knows that a child, their child or their daughter is going to a Planned Parenthood, they'll never see that child again because the parent naturally will protect that child and not allow them to go to a Planned Parenthood. So they did everything possible to ensure that parents never knew that their child was getting services there, which actually goes contrary to the Title X grant because there's actually a key concept that says that there needs to be parental involvement. Uh, the way Planned Parenthood gets around that is that they have a pamphlet in their clinic about parental involvement. Uh, so as long as they give out that pamphlet at fairs or wherever, if they gave out 50 pamphlets of parent involvement, then that was 50 outreach efforts of parental involvement. But they never involve parents. Um, now today, does Planned Parenthood have curricula focusing on parents? They do. And I think a big part of that is to really get parents to join in on their belief system on comprehensive sex education. They want parents to, so really, the only good parent to a Planned Parenthood is one that 
adopts their philosophy about sex, that children are sexual from birth, that children have a right to sexual pleasure at any age and with anyone as long as they're consenting. So if a parent is okay with that, then Planned Parenthood will work with a parent. But as far as actively seeking out parental involvement, they would prefer not to have any involvement from parents whatsoever, which is why I created It Takes a Family, uh, because I want parents to understand what's really happening, what kind of services these organizations are really providing, what they're really teaching our children, how unhealthy that is, and that in reality, the safest and most uh, healthy information that a child can get is from their parents. It's about, it's about the parent. We're the ones that are going to teach our children our beliefs and our values and our belief systems. And there's only one institution that can truly protect a child, fully protect a child, and that's the institution of the family. And so that's why I created It Takes a Family, because I want parents to have that education that they need about the world, uh, also about medically accurate information, biology, so that they can teach their children and be wise, wise to be able to see what's going on and protect their children when they need to. Amen. So if you if you have not seen The Mind Polluters, mm -hmm. then you should go back and watch that. You can watch it at themindpolluters.com. You can watch it on Salem Now. Mm -hmm. Salem Now has a subscription Yeah, they, they just option. Uh, I think they just transitioned over. I think, I think at the it beginning started, of September. I think it started over the weekend. Oh, okay. It's so it's kind of like Netflix. You yeah. pay a monthly mm -hmm. fee, and, and you can you watch can, all the movies. Right. So the Mind Polluters is a English, part of that catalog. English and Spanish are both part of that. So is Inwood Drive. Mm -hmm. But you can hear more of Monica's story and and uh, in, in specifically dealing with comprehensive sex ed. Mm -hmm. That's what. The Mind Polluters is all about. <laughs> yeah. And so Monique is a huge part and of And the that. graphic library books. <laughs> yes, yes. Learn more about why you should care. <laughs> right, why you should care and um, and the roots of where the sexual from birth notion came from, mm -hmm. which is Alfred Kinsey. We talk about him. So, um, and so Salem, themindpolluters.com, you can rent it there. You can also, we have DVDs mm -hmm. available so, um, yes. So go back and watch the mind polluters. Yeah. And, but, and there are still grassroots organizations and churches who are screening the mind polluters mm -hmm. for their communities. And we have, there are affordable licenses, screening licenses available. I'll leave links to them in the show notes. There you go. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this uh, next section that we have with Monica, um, she's going to talk about, um, getting to know and understand the homosexual and transsexual communities. So we advise if you have children around, please, um, this is not for listening ears, right. little ears. So right. maybe We're come back to it. It's going to talk about some kind of explicit things here, mm -hmm. but it's, it's necessary as adults. We can handle this. So, um, and I think it's important to remember as angry as, as we get over this and all these efforts to groom the children, and rightfully so, but I think we, Monica has such a great perspective on, and bear in mind when she was doing this work, she was not yet a believer. Right. That part of her story is not included in this, but she, she came to Christ and then she was red pilled basically and <laughs> yeah. saw the light and got out of all this. Mm -hmm. She has a, a really incredible story. But she's going to talk about some things here that really help you to understand I think the psychological issues that these people have mm -hmm. 
there's real, there's real hurt there. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not saying that to try to soften and justify the life that they're living. And I think most of the adult homosexuals and transsexuals, I still think the vast majority of them that are in that lifestyle are not trying to groom children. I think this is, this is, uh, because, and then the reason I say that is because one of the most outspoken groups against all this mm-hmm. is gays, gays against, against groomers. groomers. Yeah. The, it, to the shame of the churches in America, the gays against groomers are running laps around them fighting back against this, mm-hmm. you know, even they, even they have drawn the line somewhere where, where so many churches have just rolled over. Mm-hmm. So listen very carefully to, to how Monica describes her interaction with these people and kind of their mindsets. I graduated from the University of Texas at Austin in 1996. And in my last semester, I volunteered for an HIV organization. You know, at the time, HIV was something people were very scared of. We should still be very concerned about HIV, of course. Um, But it was just really fresh on everyone's mind. And as a young woman about to graduate, degree in psychology, I, I... wanted to do my part. I wanted to change the world. I wanted to make sure people were not getting HIV. I had people in my life who had passed away from HIV. Um, and I, I just, I really wanted to help. So I started volunteering at an organization in Austin and, uh, it was a gay organization that had HIV prevention money. And I volunteered for several months, had never seen that kind of education before, uh, out in the public, just speaking very candidly about sex, Um, I myself was in a very different state of mind at that age. And so I thought it was pretty phenomenal. Like, wow, I cannot believe people are talking this openly with teenagers, adults, uh, you know, people on the streets of high risk neighborhoods. I was fascinated. So within a few months I was hired and I became one of their outreach workers. And, uh, and I received my training from that organization, mostly reading CDC pamphlets on the various STDs as well as HIV. The other outreach workers were teaching me. And because it was a gay organization, they also wanted me to fully understand the gay community, uh, which was a big part of it because I was working in, as an outreach worker for the women's prevention team. Uh, but there was also a men's prevention team that was very specific for men who have sex with men. Um, and that was an important, it's important, I think, in public health ed- education that they call it that because not all men identified as homosexual or bisexual, but they were having sex with other men. So it's very behavior focused. So when you um, hear about uh, risk reduction education or comprehensive sex education, back then we were, we used gender neutral terms and we just talked about sexual behavior. Um, so you know, the, my, my supervisor wanted me to understand, uh, the, the gay population or the men who have sex with men, and they would take me out with them to observe their outreach. Now, women couldn't reach out to men who have sex with men, uh, because the way they conducted this outreach is in, in some ways they would go to the areas in which men were having sex with men. And that could be in public parks, public restrooms, um, you know, nightclubs, uh, bathhouses, which were not legal, but they would still go there. And part of that outreach to men was that the men would 
give each other what they call a look, uh, which made them think that they were going to engage in sexual behavior, but instead they would give them prevention information. Uh, and so the community started to understand that that's what they were doing, but they had a really kind of become part of that environment. And so I never went to a bathhouse, of course. I did go to the gay bars and I did observe their outreach at public restrooms and public parks. Um, when I returned back from that outreach experience, my supervisor asked me what I thought about the experience. And I let him know that I thought it was really, really sad to see to witness what I had witnessed, men giving each other looks and then slinking away behind a tree or going into a restroom. And he became very upset with me and said that this was part of the gay culture and that it was, I was being offensive and discriminatory and not understanding their position. Now at this time, this, this man, um, you know, labeled himself as being married to his gay partner and I let him know, I was like, well, don't you want your own people, other gay men, to have what you have, uh, a relationship and not anonymous, dangerous sex out in public? Um, and, he, and he let me know that I just didn't understand and that this was what they had to do because society did not allow them to be open. Um, I pushed back on that again. And I said, you know, well, biracial couples sometimes are not accepted, you know, but it doesn't mean that we're having sex in public restrooms. So, um, so I don't, I don't, I don't think that that's a valid argument. So we agreed to disagree. Um, and there was no, you know, I wasn't let go of my job or anything. It was all part of my training to understand the community. But what I came to understand was that in the homosexual community, is that there was a lot of objectification and dehumanization of one another. Um, but they didn't see it that way. It was just part of their life. I was invited into, um, you know, into, into group talks about homosexuality with homosexuals and um, especially with lesbians because they would accept me more being present, you know, as a female. And I remember this one time, um, at one of these meetings, the women were talking about why they were so different from one another, meaning there was the butch lesbians and there was the lipstick lesbians. And then there was the, you know, then they all giggled about the granola lesbians. And they were just kind of wondering why they looked so different from one another. Why did one woman want to look more like a man? And why did other women want to look so feminine? And they were even asking each other, well, why would two really feminine women want to date each other? Wouldn't they want to be with a more masculine lesbian? And so in all honesty, they were, they were confused. They were trying to figure themselves out and each other out in these dynamics. Um, when I would go to the nightclubs, which we went to a lot for whether it was fundraisers or outreach, that was also social time. And I saw what I really saw was a lot of role playing in the homosexual community, um, men role playing as ultra masculine or feminine and playing out those roles with each other. Uh, the women were doing the same thing. Uh, very, very masculine uh, women who would dress up in a suit and have two very feminine women with her, uh, almost playing out like a, a pimp and prostitute thing. 
uh, dominating even throughout the night. It wasn't just, you know, dress up, but even their personalities and the way they were, you know, were with each other was really acting out this dominating role. Um, and so what I saw in the homosexual community was a lot of role playing. Now, do I see role playing in other communities as well? Yeah, I think we do. But in the homosexual community, it was so much of really trying to discover themselves, trying to figure themselves out, but at the same time, never having peace about it either. And uh, one year, a woman that I had worked with for quite a few years uh, identified as a butch lesbian. And about five years after knowing her, she began to spiral and become more and more depressed. And she finally confided in me that she thought maybe she was a man. And it really bothered her a lot. And she didn't understand because she identified it as a lesbian. But then all of a sudden she said, but I feel that maybe I'm a man. And she became more and more depressed and spiraled and eventually left her job. She just couldn't work anymore. She couldn't do anything anymore. Um, she was very, very lost and no one could give her any answers. So what I started to realize, especially now, you know, many years later, that these role playing, in my opinion, it seems as though that if when we start to live contrary to our creation, we never have peace. And if we continue down that path of living contrary to our creation, we eventually start to spiral and it starts to get even worse until we can find ourselves out of it and align ourselves with our true selves, which I believe is as God created us. I was thinking, listening back to that too, you remember in What is a Woman? Mm -hmm. And the one uh, woman who looks and sounds an awful lot like a man who was talking about all of the health issues. Yes that have come and how she only was not expected to live too much longer because I don't remember what all the issues were. Mm -hmm. But she's a, she's a lifelong patient yeah, now. I yeah. mean, she has to have other medications to counteract what she has done to her body through yeah. the, te the testosterone and everything mm -hmm. that had happened. I, and bone damage and I, a whole slew of things yeah. associated with. Yeah. And if you listen to somebody like that, I, I would venture to guess, I don't remember that they actually got into this in that, in that interview, but I would venture to guess that if you were to talk to her and ask her if this is something that should be, um, pushed on kindergartners. Mm-hmm. Right. Or children of any age, she would say absolutely not. I mean, there's so many of them that you hear that they they have so much regret over what they've done. And they and they say, no, I don't you know, this is a choice that I've made. Mm -hmm. um, and they may they may or may not regret everything, but they'll certainly say, no, this isn't something that, you, that kids should be groomed for. Mm -hmm. It's really so the. You're really talking about, I think, a growing minority. It is, it is a growing voice from the radical loony left to, you know, 
force this on children. Well, and you you would think that that's what popular opinion is based on the propaganda that's out there. But honestly, there are so many people rising up to 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 reject this ideology and this notion and this grooming of children. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so speaking of that, you know, the all of the side effects. So this last section with Monica, she's going to talk about um, some of the some how she watched these people deal with these side effects. Yeah. It's really very sad. It it really is very, it is very sad. sad. And I think as believers, we need to have we need to have empathy. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's sad that we have to remind ourselves to have empathy because we should. It's hard to see past that because because it's been so forced in our faces and so we tend to take a broad axe to fight back and say I hate everything about what's going on and and i hate the people too and uh, if if no one tells them mm-hmm. how will they know right right it it is incumbent on us to minister to them as well we can't just turn our backs on them despite even, how wicked they are yeah even are. even when they lash out yes against you you know Love them enough to tell them the truth. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things we've said over and over again, especially researching this transgender ideology. I struggle with it every day. It's hard for me when I see how, because we study, we study really in depth that we see so much Mm -hmm. of the wickedness that we don't even put in the films because it's too much. It's too much for us. And you just, some of it you look at and go, this is just really too much. Well, and it, and it's hard too, especially when you, you, you love them enough to, you want to tell them the truth and they hate you for it. Yeah. And the only ones really fighting for their soul to yes. tell them the truth of, of their eternity and what's going to happen. They hate you. Yeah. They hate you. They hate you. It's the, it's the demons. Yeah. It's the demons behind them that are convincing them that, that they should hate you. and uh, But we as Christians know, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Exactly. All right, last section with Monica. At some point, I was doing um, women's health fair in the community, and it was specifically for lesbian women. And this man came up and said, well, where's my health care? And I said, well, this is a women's health care. <laughs> you know, so that's why there's nothing here about men. He said, well, I'm not exactly a man. And he let me know that he was a biological female that had had surgery and hormones to change himself to look and be and live like a man. And uh, I was still at that time of my life, which I still am very compassionate, but I thought, I want to help. I want to provide you with whatever it is that you need. So I went back to my supervisor and he said, why don't you put an ad in the paper and advertise a focus group and just invite people to come who identify as transgender, find out what they need and see if we can provide it. And so I did that and I probably had nearly 40 to 50 people show up. And it was probably ranging from drag queens to people who were trying to live as the opposite gender under the radar, Um, not like a drag queen. And so what we settled with as an organization is that we would create a peer support group for the transgender community 
that we're trying to truly live as the opposite gender and not necessarily dressing up like a drag queen. And so that's what happened. And so we had probably about eight to 10 people and it continued to grow in that year. And, uh, and they just needed a facilitator. So that's what I became. I wasn't a licensed counselor and it was just a peer group and they just wanted a facilitator, just someone to help with the logistics and kind of run the group and let them share with one another. So that's what I did for about a year. And, um, you know, I had one person who was, who had fully gotten the surgery and everything had been changed and was on hormones. Uh, another person was on hormones, no surgery, but had removed all of his hair and everything so that he could look very much like a woman. And he did, but he still had his male genitalia. Um, I had a male who, you know, just looked like a very tall, blonde volleyball player, but on hormones, but no surgery. Had a um, woman who looked very much like a man um, who was seeking out a mastectomy. And, um, and then we had an older man who was living as a woman, um, married to a man, and during our time together, did go through the transition or had not transitioned, but had the surgery. And when he returned, he was very happy because he felt that he was really menstruating because he had to wear feminine products because of the bleeding that was occurring, uh, you know, where he got a, had a vagina made. And so he was very elated that at least for a time, he got to wear sanitary napkins and feel like maybe he was really a woman. Um, and he explained to us what he had to do to maintain that vagina. Um, he described his husband as being a straight man, but he loved him or, you know, presenting himself like a woman. So we had all kinds. We had a, another gentleman who, um, was so masculine and so large that it was very difficult for him to present as a woman. And he would only go out at night dressed like a woman and was usually attacked. Um, he would, it was scary for people to see him and he was attacked several times. He, he cried a lot during group. Um, and I would go out with them even as, you know, my, my heart was that I wanted them to feel loved. I was so young. And it's not bad to help have someone feel loved. Um, I think if I saw all of those people today, I would still want to comfort and love them. Um, but they were living outside of their creation. And the depression, the confusion that they had needed to be treated. And it was not being treated by having surgeries or using hormones. The hormones, the effects on the women, as I observed, made them very um, angry, almost violent. Um, they needed someone to help keep them calm. Um, it, it, there was just a lot, a lot that they went through. After a year of doing that and working at this organization, teaching comprehensive sex education, living the lifestyle, accepting everything that the gay community was teaching me, I began to question my own sexuality. Um, 
and running that group, I began to have dreams that I was a man, that I would see myself in a mirror, a full length mirror, and I was a man. And it scared me. And I told my supervisor about that. And he, you know, and my supervisor cared for me deeply and acted, I'll be honest, I feel like he acted like a father at that moment and said, you need to let go of that group. And I, and I recognized that as a facilitator, I, I, I was, this group needed more than I could provide. At the time, I didn't understand that they needed a certain kind of counseling to help them come out of their gender dysphoria. Instead, we placed them with a counseling group that was for the LGBTQ community. And they actually did have a licensed counselor who was also transgender. Um, and so I transitioned the group to that person. And, and they were in agreement that they felt that they needed a licensed counselor as well. And so it was a very professionally, very delicately done transition um, to that organization. I don't have any regrets of being with them and caring for them and really loving them the way I did. I just wish, I wish I had known better then so I could place them somewhere where they could truly be as they were created. And I feel the same way about people who identify as bisexual or homosexual. Um, I think of all my friends back then, and many of the men were like brothers to me. And I think if you could live as the man that God created you to be, what an amazing husband you would be. What an amazing father you would be. A husband to a wife, a father to your own children. Same as for the women. Um, I really believe that these, um, I really believe that homosexuality, bisexuality, the transgender confusion, I believe all of that is an attack on humanity. And I can't help but for me believe that the people affected by this have such a special calling in their lives to do something so amazing by God. And they're being distracted by this lifestyle. They're being completely destroyed by this lifestyle. And once you're in it, you are so protective of it because that's what I did. I was very protective of the LGBTQ community back then. I was protective of uh, even the decisions I was making for my own life. And that's what makes it difficult is that you now feel that you need to really protect the stance or the lifestyle that you've chosen. But there really is another way. And, uh, and I know that that's controversial for a lot of people, but I believe that the, the true piece is to come back to your creation. And, and what I observe in the transgender community is that if you get off your hormones, your body naturally tries to heal itself to go back to exactly the way God created you to be. Um, if, in all honesty, create constructing a vagina in a male body 
they have to maintain that vagina. They have to keep it open by doing different things to, so that it doesn't close on itself. Why? Because the body wants to heal itself. That's not natural for a man to have that organ. It's not real. And, uh, and so it's almost like we're, we are betraying our own body. And really the body is calling out and screaming out and saying, let me heal, let me heal. And uh, if we can align our bodies with our spirits and our minds and accept our creation, just as we're created, we would find that peace again. And it may take some help and some work, um, but I believe that there's hope. Listening to that, and I was remembering a friend of ours that, um, that we met at church. And uh, his name was Noah. And Noah was, um, he was, he was a, he was a believer. He had been saved out of homosexuality mm -hmm. and he latched on to us as a couple pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> he, when he knew what we did for a living, he wanted to be our friend mm -hmm. and and we openly welcomed him yes. into our family and I, loved him yeah. unconditionally. I remember the first time, the first time that we met him, and he had he had business cards because <laughs> he had his own YouTube channel, mm -hmm. and he really idolized, for lack of a better word, Ray Comfort. Mm -hmm. He really wanted to to he loved doing street evangelism, mm -hmm. and he kind of tried to emulate how Ray Comfort goes out and you know, has, wears the camera and puts a camera in front of them and, you know, kind of yeah. tries to ask them the questions and evangelize them. And he would do that. He just felt called to do that as his ministry, but particularly he would, he lived in the inner city and he would seek people out who were part of the homosexual community. As he was. As he was so that he could share his testimony yeah. with them and tell them about how Christ saved him out of that. Mm -hmm. And, um, I remember he, uh, he asked if we could have coffee one day. And so we were sitting and having coffee and he just started spilling his guts to me. And he started telling me about when he was living as a homosexual, that he had a transsexual girlfriend. So it transgender. was transgender. Yeah, transgender. Sorry. So it was another guy dressing and acting like a woman. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was, I remember trying to process it because it is confusing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, wait, okay. So you're gay mm -hmm. at the time. You have a gay boyfriend who pretends to be a woman so that you can have what appears to be a normal relationship. And he said, yes, he said, that's exactly why I dated her slash him mm -hmm. was because that's what everybody expected of me. Yeah. So he was putting on a show to have a quote unquote girlfriend when really he was still living as a homosexual. It is written on the truth is written on our hearts. Yeah. God created them male and female. Mm -hmm. And to see how 
they long to emulate that even in their sinful desires. Yeah. In their in their pride and ugh. Yeah. And I remember um just being kind of fascinated by that. And I it it made my it made me really hurt for Noah. Mm-hmm. Um just because to go to that to those depths for because you're on the one hand you're saying I don't care what anybody thinks, but on the other hand you you care what everybody thinks. Mm-hmm. You're trying to give the world what you think that they want to see, but you but you're living a lie. Well, in the same way that the transgender ideology is really robbing individuals of their full potential and the hoops that you have to go through to maintain that lifestyle yeah. is the same thing. You know, that that Noah is trying to, he was trying to maintain a lifestyle that looked, the, the hoops that you have to jump through to, yeah. to have this imaginary um, acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. And we talk about him and we say was because Noah, uh, Noah committed suicide. He, he yeah. had, he had strong mental health issues that. Mm-hmm. No one could. Yeah. And it wasn't long after. It was maybe a month after he and I sat down and talked. Yeah. And we found out. Well, we only knew him for a couple of months, but I know, yeah. that, I know that he was getting counseling from others in the church and yeah. from his own counselor. And so it was, it was sad when. Yeah. But there were a couple of things that I took away from that. Number one, that it was, um, it was a, a stark reminder that people that are struggling with this, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, you know, it's all, they're all arms of the same hydra, the same octopus. And, um, and this is why in our films, especially in dysphoria, we don't really separate too much. When we talk about transgenderism, we're talking about it basically as as a permutation of homosexuality. Well, you have to look it at is. it. Listen, it is. Let's go through their letters. Yeah. Well, and they keep adding them. So we'll just do the basic ones. You know, L G B T Q I A plus. I mean, they're not separating them. Right. We are not separating them. Right. Yet when you are, when you have a debate with them, they, they will demand that they be separated, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it's this, you know, it, the the thing that that I remembered from Monica, and she said it in in her interview here, how important it was to differentiate homosexuals from men who have sex with men. And I'm going, real? What is the difference? To make you're, them feel better, you're engaging in an act of homosexuality. Listen, listen. You know when you when you bring the truth as defined in the pages of scripture, mm-hmm. it's going to offend people. Yeah. And so in order to um, make them feel better about themselves, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. But I'm sorry. I, 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 I love you enough to tell you the truth. Yeah. That's, that's where we stand. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's so bizarre. And that's why, uh, that's why when, when you listen to the stuff and you, and you read the stuff and it's so in your face all the time and I get it, I, I totally understand the, uh, the thought of I'm over it. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of hearing about it. I don't want to hear about it anymore, but I get it. I mm-hmm. get it. I don't want to hear about it anymore either. 
Trust me. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, and sometimes you got to back away and, and, you know, take a break. I get it. We do the same thing. So, you know, I guess be encouraged that um, our battle is not against flesh and blood. These these people are, they're trapped. Mm-hmm. They really they're are trapped. They're desperate looking they, for answers. Yeah, they're looking for answers. And they're finding them in all the wrong places, mm-hmm. just like dealing with an addict, just like, I mean, anything else, they need help. And it is a, it is a wicked addiction mm-hmm. that they're stuck. It's a demonic act that they have. Demonic that, deception. That they have fallen into. Mm-hmm. And you're not, well, you're not just going to be able to talk most of them out of it. I tell you that they're, they're it, it is. It is a deeply rooted spiritual mental issue. So yep. anyway, well, that's with all that, that I have. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening through to the end. And be sure to click that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And share this with your friends and family. Until next time, friends. Have a wonderfully blessed week. We will talk to you again next Tuesday. And I master Yoda. You seek Yoda.